Hello and welcome to the Irish Gerontological Society podcast. Um, today we have Dr. Ronan Collins, a consultant geriatrician in stroke in Tally University Hospital and also the clinical lead for the Irish National Stroke Programme. Um, welcome, Ronan. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, I suppose the reason why we thought it would be time to do this podcast is just being conscious of the stroke audit report that came out last week. We thought it could be a good chance to talk about the audit findings, relating it back to the, I suppose, stroke program and the strategy for the next couple of years. And I suppose just for everyone to get up to date with what's going on in stroke care in Ireland, if that's all right. Yeah, no, I think it's probably timely maybe to give you a little update. It's a yeah. good uh, good way of doing it, absolutely, yeah. Um, so we might, maybe, would it be best to start with the audit that came out last week? And Yeah, sure, absolutely, yeah. And just to say for anyone listening in, I'll put a link to the report and the strategy in the, in the podcast below it. So you'll hear us talking about certain facts and figures, but you can have a read yourself afterwards. Um, I suppose I'm a physio by background, Ronan, um, in rehab, and it was quite interesting. There seems to be lots of improvement, but there's huge gaps in so many parts of service at the moment. Um, I don't know, do you want to talk about maybe some of the big findings in the audit? Yeah, I think the first thing is to understand is that the audit is an extremely useful tool for me in my role. Um, and uh, listen, in my role as a clinical lead, I'm the spokesperson for a much broader group of people that are working behind um, on the stroke strategy. Um, so I'm just the current spokesperson and that is the way I see it. Um, it's very useful for us to have a strategy like this and it's all, or to have an audit like this that comes outside um, from the stroke program or even from the people who are on the clinical advisory group to the stroke program because then it is taken as bona fide, as been objective, as not as seen to trying to feather your own nest or your own clinical interest, but rather actually a realistic shot of what's happening in stroke services. And I suppose if there's one thing I think we're proud of in the stroke program in the last couple of years as an achievement is that we did get the Irish National Audit of Stroke put on a firm independent footing uh, and that our stroke registrar was register was moved away from the program under the auspices of the um, National Office of Clinical Audit, NOCA, uh, because independent audit can really tell you what's wrong mm -hmm. and it gives you a very powerful um, data to go back to health commissioners and say, listen, I'm not saying this. It, you know, the National Office of Clinical Audit is telling us this. And so therefore, you know, what we've been saying in terms of our strategy, we need more resource investment, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, I think, you know, notwithstanding that, I think anyone who reads the audit will be struck by probably two very big things. The first thing is that you're right, there has been an improvement. And I think uh, by you know, all these small steps um, of having audit focusing the attention uh, has already led to improvement without any implementation of our strategy. Um, but also I think you will still be struck by the fact that a third of people do not get into a stroke unit yeah. uh, who have a stroke. Now, if I said that in coronary care, uh, that a third of people who come into a hospital with acute myocardial infarction did not get into a coronary care unit, it would be front page of the Irish Times. Yeah. If I said to you that a third of people with cancer did not get into a recommended cancer unit, there would be an uproar about it. And for some reason, although things are improving, 
although stroke is becoming the second leading cause of death and disability in the developed countries, it has been slow to attract that same kind of maybe, um, I won't say outrage, but that same kind of surprise startle. Why is this yeah. that a third of people who have an acute stroke aren't getting into a stroke unit? In addition to that, the other thing that jumps out at me is that the staffing levels across our units is universally poor. I mean, over 80% of acute stroke units do not have the recommended nursing care uh, for a start. Let's start there. And then if you look down in terms of provision of therapy, you've roughly about, we've only about 50% of our units have the adequate physiotherapy, um, about, you know, 35 to 40% of the units don't have adequate um, um, occupational therapy uh, and then you can go on similarly with worse with speech and language therapy about half very much so less in dietetics about 70% plus have no access to clinical dietetics which is a very important part of stroke care as well and then when it comes to psychology disaster strikes um, you know very few very units have access to psychological um, therapy for patients recovering from a stroke so the two things that jumped out at me is that yes we have made progress we have more stroke unit beds we have more stroke units um, but uh, they really aren't resourced properly um, so it's kind of a veneer uh, a mob is required but we're not really stepping up to the mark these aren't fully resourced adequately um, sized stroke units to meet the needs of our population that would be the standout for me yeah and I suppose in a similar vein the early support to discharge like the ESD teams across the country I've seen that they've gone from 3 to 10 but not one has the recommended composition of staff so it does seem like everything's going a direction, but it's just not fully resourced. Yeah, and you will be well, very well aware that that figure of 10 ESD uh, teams is a little bit of a lie as well, yeah. in the sense that none of them, including the ones that were commissioned from the start, are at a full staffing complement. And in addition to that, um, at least four of those teams are not on permanent funding. They have been funded from various sources such as winter initiatives, mm -hmm. national treatment purchase funds, etc., etc. And that is not a sustainable situation. Now, I want to pay credit to our ESD teams, particularly during the pandemic, yeah. because to achieve getting 7% of our stroke patient population home with early supported discharge was a huge achievement, an increase and a huge achievement during difficult times. And that needs to be recognized all, all of us in the stroke program and i know i'm preaching a little bit to the converted but we're passionate about early supported discharge because we think we can get somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of our stroke patient population home early on early supported discharge and the benefit of esd it's not that it just benefits the system and it probably saves an average four to five hospital bed days per patient discharged mm -hmm. home in esd and of course there's an obvious benefit to that to the hospitals and our units but the real benefit is to patients they do better um, you know the international cochrane collaboration and systematic review of esd shows that patients who go home in esd have better functional outcomes have less reattendances at hospital and also for some reason have less stroke recurrence now that may be through uh, better education and uh, uh, medication adherence adherence etc but it is 
an international best model of care and that's really what I'm passionate about as well. We think that for an investment overall in our stroke strategy, we're looking for an investment of about um, 4 million um, through ESD. Uh, we think we will save the health service about 2.2 million net. Um, so invest 4 million to save 2.2 million net, it's a no-brainer, really is a no-brainer. Uh, but more importantly, patients want it. Patients want to go home early. They want to you know, have the safety and psychological support uh, of being at home sooner. But they want to do it in a way that they feel they're properly supported. Yeah, of course. I suppose in a similar vein, I know we touched on like one of the big things is 150 beds come up to 239. Yet, as you say, a third of people don't get to a stroke unit. And I seen the day of the survey, so many of the hospital stroke units were full that day, but there is an additional 67% of additional patients throughout a hospital and outlier wards. Um, it's something I thought just given the last couple of years, there's been a huge amount of focus on ICU and what makes an ICU and who's in ICU and why is it so expensive. Uh, one of the comments was after the thrombolysis, they might people who go to ICU, CCU, HDU, often presumed maybe because there isn't like a hyperacute stroke unit or there isn't the resources. I would have thought that would have come up to a forefront if that's a group that you could maybe keep out of the ICU in their own dedicated ICU. It just seems very topical, just given the, I suppose, public discussions in the last couple of years. No, I agree with you. Uh, on, on the one hand, there's no doubt about it. Our stroke units, like I said, are not really properly resourced from the outset. They're not. Yeah. And so, for example, in terms of doing thrombolysis, but also receiving patients back who've just had a thrombectomy, and in addition, taking patients back down from theatre who have recently had a carotid endarterectomy. I see all that patient group as being the business of acute stroke units. Mm -hmm. um, and so most of our units are not in a position to do that. And particularly in the, um, if I can use this term advisedly, maybe the slightly smaller sites, it, it can be difficult to, for example, I do a thrombolysis on a unit, it would have to be done in a CCU and in an ICU setting. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's appropriate. I think the definition of a stroke unit is very well defined in the international literature. In addition to that, now we've got very clear um, guidance from the European Stroke Organization as to how your stroke unit is accredited. It needs a little bit more work on both ends, both from the ESO um, view, because I think some of the stuff is a bit too prescriptive, but it also needs work on our end. We can't just you know, point at three or four beds and say that's an acute stroke unit. Mm -hmm. Yes, having a geographical unit is important, but that's just one small bit of it. We need to be able to look after acute stroke patients. Mm -hmm. And there has been, I suppose, a modern view that there is now has-use, hyper-acute uh, stroke units and acute stroke units. My own personal view is that there's a little bit of splitting hairs in terms of definition here. Um, you know, if you're in acute stroke centre in our country, you can do 24-7 thrombolysis. If you do 24-7 thrombolysis, hyper-acute stroke care. Uh, so you need to be able to look after that patient. Um, and... I think there's a shortage of intensive care unit beds. You're absolutely right, Adele. Uh, I'm sure our colleagues in ICU would, would like us to be able to look after more of our patients. Yeah. Of course, there are patients that will need ICU care. We have intracerebral hemorrhages and subarachnoid hemorrhages, depending on how you look at that within the definition of stroke, that need ICU care. But certainly our stroke units need to be more resourced. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, I suppose something that's just struck me, I come from a rehab background and obviously the service analysis in this audit is very acute focused. The ESD, you could argue, is getting into rehab or community. Um, is there any plans to map out, I suppose, rehab access for people living with stroke or is there any commentary on how many beds there are, say for the people who can't do ESD, on-site, off-site, under 65, over 65? So you've stood in a landmine there. <laughs> I, I dare I bring up the rehab. <laughs> no, no, and I, I'm being slightly facetious, but yeah. when we were writing the stroke strategy, as you know, our stroke strategy is divided into four pillars, yeah. all of which are very important. I was into uh, the second one. <laughs> yeah, pre yeah, prevention, acute care and cure, restoration to living and research and education. And all of those are very important in a proper comprehensive stroke strategy to meet the needs of the people. Going back to restoration to living, we were some bit hemmed in on either side mm -hmm. because we were aware within the clinical program that there is a clinical program for older people to the right of us yeah. and to the left of us there is also a national rehabilitation uh, model of care, new rehabilitation model of care. And so we did realize that within these two parallel clinical programs sits stroke. Now, I personally believe that early supported discharge is a specialized model of stroke mm -hmm. rehabilitation and getting people home. I think once that period of the program ends, there will need to be a transitioning to um, the integrated care program structures uh, under the older person's clinical program and to the new rehabilitation model of care because once a person has made a recovery from stroke, as you and I well know, over 70% of patients will have an ongoing need or some form of physical impairment that needs review because stroke patients do not stay static in their recovery. Mm -hmm. They reach a level of functional gain and very often will subsequently again uh, uh, experience further impairment or deteriorate and will need a review and a further period of reablement. Um, apologies if you can hear a noise in the background. That's our helicopter landing actually outside. So apologies about no, that. No, you're grand. Okay. Live action medicine. Yeah. Uh, the second. Um, the second issue, as you read, as you alluded to, is people having off-site um, access to rehabilitation beds. Now, it is true to say that most of our acute stroke units are actually hybrid models. They do both acute stroke treatment and they do a acute stroke rehabilitation. So they do both things. And then there is a period of what's often required, if you can phrase this, as subacute rehabilitation, mm -hmm. but still a very important phase of a patient's recovery. A phase in which very often, if things go wrong, the patient can experience very significant setbacks and unwind all the hard work that has been done. And so there hasn't been a national mapping strategy to look at the rehabilitation beds uh, from a stroke point of view solely. Some of this has been done within the new rehabilitation model of care, as alluded to. Some of it has been done under the kind of the National Care Programme for Older People in kind of generically stating how many rehabilitation beds we need per proportion number of the mm -hmm. population. And within that will need to be access to patients who have recently had a stroke. Yeah. Great. You got around that anyway for an awkward question. Well, it, it, it's, it's also, I think it's also a national discussion we need to have because what is, what I'm very conscious of is that we do not want to end up with fractured services here. And part of me is resistant to the notion 
um, that re neurorehabilitation uh, is separate uh, for younger people and older people you are on older people. I think there's a hybrid model that needs to be, because many older people also need vocational training. Mm -hmm. Many older people are working. I mean, I go fishing with a guy who's 100 this year. He's still working. Um, wow. So, I mean, you can't talk about um, vocational training being narrowed down to just within neurorehabilitation. We need to have a broader view of vocational training because it applies to everybody. The goals may be different. The aspirations of patients may be different. But it, those models of rehabilitation apply to younger people just as they do to older people. Of course, younger people have different and specific needs. Older people also have different and specific needs. But I think the general principle I'm trying to espouse here is that all rehabilitation must be patient-centered and yep. not be based on a person's numerical age. Yeah, for definite. Um, I suppose last question around the audit. Um, I suppose I'd be a bit more familiar with, say, the hip fracture database or those types of audits that are, it's about it's more patient outcome as tracks all the patients in the country, whereas this is more a survey of services available at a moment in time. That's my understanding of the difference. Um, is there any plan to go more towards that patient measured outcome, even to get a distribution or demographic of who our stroke yeah. servers are? So first thing I suppose for people who are not very familiar with the stroke uh, program, at its outset, we did manage to get agreement on three national KPIs mm -hmm. uh, accepted by the SRI. One was that 90% of patients would get access to a stroke unit. So that's currently not happening, obviously. 90% yeah. of uh, the patient's acute stay would be in a stroke unit. That's not happening, obviously. And a 12% thrombolysis rate, and we're almost achieving that. So certainly at the emergency department front door, through you know great QI programs led by the National Thrombectomy Service with the R, um, um, RCPI, have led to huge change in culture at our front door in treating people. But behind that, we still have KPIs that we're not achieving because of the reasons I alluded to, that our stroke units aren't big enough, they're not properly resourced enough, don't have enough beds, etc., etc. In addition to that, there is the other eventual patient outcomes, mm -hmm. which currently we have just started to collect. So we're about maybe eight to 10 years behind the hip fracture database. Um, and the work led by um, Ian Merhern, Tara Cochran, Louise Brent and other people. So, uh, so we're about 10 years behind that. Um, um, but we're catching up. So we've started to collect data on modified ranking scale as a very crude measure, but an easily collectible and reproducible measure in terms of patient outcome. We do, of course, have data, good data on absolute outcome in terms of mortality um, or not. And those, those figures are very encouraging. But we are keen to gather more sophisticated data and rehabilitation outcomes and eventual, uh, if you like, functional outcomes. Uh, we're also starting to collect data on the amount of therapy time provided to patients as an important process of care. I think it's very important we understand, how, you know, it's granted being a stroke unit, how many beds does it have, does it have the staffing ratios, but actually are patients getting the necessary recommended therapy times as well. So, it, listen, it's a work in progress, mm -hmm. but I think to understand our journey, 
getting into Noka, we've only just got into Noka in late 2019, then the pandemic hit, so for the fact that we're able to produce the, uh, the audits we have so far, it's been a huge achievement for us um, and for the team at Noka, uh, led by Joe Harbison uh, and Joan McCormick, so it's been a huge, uh, yeah. and Tim Cassie, huge achievement to get those audits out. Uh, but also we are collecting data and outcomes going forward. We are thinking outside the box, for example, with some very nice data during COVID, what happened to stroke services mm -hmm. during COVID, some nice, uh, um, if you like, activity data during that, so we understood that. And also I think we are beginning to now look at, um, in addition to just outcomes in terms of functionality, we are beginning to look at broader issues allied to stroke in addition, therapy time uh, and also other issues. I think our eventual plan is to move to a tariff-based system like Hip Fracture has done, uh, yeah. you know, to try and drive improvement, to say to people, listen, you will get remunerated if you provide A, B, C, D, E for your acute stroke patients. I think also the general move of the National Audit, uh, Irish National Audit of Stroke is to kind of have a core data collection every year mm -hmm. and then maybe every, we will do kind of, um, specific drives on data collection around certain issues. So there may be a certain drive around, for example, thrombectomy one year, or there may be a data drive around ESD another year. So we will have a core data set, and then we will do specific drives periodically uh, on data around stroke, including organization and some of our processes of care. Yeah, that's great. Um, Lovely. So I don't know, do you have anything further you want to add on the audit? I think we covered some of the, the main points from the report last week. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I think, I think people can see, even if you just look at the executive summary of stroke mm -hmm. isn't your first love, you can see that, you know, I think everyone should be interested your lifetime uh, risk of getting stroke is one in four. And so, you know, it's worth what your time really, you know, uh, focusing, it's in everyone's interest that we've good stroke services from prevention uh, uh, to, to acute treatment and rehabilitation. Yeah, and, and I suppose the, we've had a lot of discussion there about all the kind of gaps and areas, but the ultimate dream slash solution would be the stroke strategy. Um, just having a look through it, it would be the gold standard, everything staff, everything done well. Um, I suppose it was 2020 to 2025. We're halfway through 2022. And obviously there's a big pandemic at the first quarter of that. Um, so how do you feel, or I suppose, have you any opinions on the progress of the stroke strategy today? Well, the, f the first thing to be fair is I think we renamed it to 2021 to 2026, to be fair, because of the pandemic. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I think otherwise it would be a little bit unfair, both to the HSE, to be fair to them as yeah. well, uh, because literally nothing happened for a year. So the HSE, um, the first thing to say is just the stroke strategy is not my work. It's the work of several people. Mm -hmm. It's the work of um, uh, four different uh, program managers. Uh, it's the work of a big uh, clinical advisory group, which was multidisciplinary. Uh, we decided at the outset that the strategy was not going to meet everything we needed in stroke. Mm -hmm. uh, we have ha had criticism uh, from the stakeholder engagement. It's justified criticism. Uh, I think if you can't take criticism, I don't think you're reflective on what you've done. Um, so, you know, take the criticism on board. But I would say to people who read the strategy and say it's not ambitious enough, it's too um, narrow. Um, what I would say to people is that at the outset, one of our guiding principles was that this strategy will be 
implementable in five years, mm -hmm. something that you actually can implement within five years. And the second thing was is that each of the pillars, which were divided into prevention, as I said, acute care and cure, restoration to living and education and research, would come up with four or five high-impact measures, mm -hmm. high-impact for patient and service, that we know we could deliver on. So we put the onus back on the stroke. Don't suggest something that, you know, don't say something like 100 extra consultants in stroke because you couldn't employ 100 extra consultants in stroke maybe over the time period. So you've got to, you know, re be realistic. And the reason for that is because we were trying to make the strategy align with the lifetime of a government. Uh, your government and the Minister for Health will be invested in a strategy that's going to be delivered within the lifetime of that government. It becomes more tricky if you start straddling two different governments. Um, and so we have produced a strategy after three years work in deliberation and fine-tuning and costing and recosting as the salary scales change from year to year, which is a big job as well, uh, to produce a document that was accepted by the Chief Clinical Officers Department in um, in June of 2021 and finally accepted by the executive management team of the HSE um, literally last month. Um, listen, that's slow progress, but you have to understand as well that the executive management team have been fighting you know, yeah. uh, the most significant pandemic uh, since the 1960s. Um, so, you know, it, one has to be realistic as well as to how much traction you can get within that real politic of what was going on in terms of the pandemic. So we are where we are. Um, I suppose our initial frustrations last year, we did put in very good business cases uh, based on what we saw as being the first phase of implementation of our national stroke program and we didn't get any traction. We got no monies at all last year. Uh, very disappointed about that made some appeals in the background uh, and we've managed to get some money this year probably somewhere in the region of 2.5 million non-recurrent funding which we will try and use uh, towards targeted projects to improve stroke care and software and maybe appointments um, with a view to getting the recurrent funding uh, and maybe an additional 1.5 million in recurrent funding that we can try and start um, implementing our stroke strategy. Obviously, the immediate work then of implementing the strategy is now accepted, begins with submitting business cases again for this cycle of funding from the Department of Health, and that work is starting this month, and we've started already. Um, so I'm optimistic now that the HSE have adopted the strategy that it's one thing to do a business case for the Department of Health, but you then must have the HSC in there advocating for you as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm optimistic um, from you know, the executive management team accepting the strategy as proposed by Dr. Colm Henry that they will now fully advocate for the funding uh, with the Department of Health and we will get our funding over the next couple of years. We're looking for a total spend of about 24 million uh, over the next four year period um, and you know, we think we can make big changes for stroke care with that money. Yeah, that's great. So it's, it's, it's pretty great progress considering like the, the pandemic was still in the heat at the start of this year. So it's... Well, it depends <laughs> on how you view it. I've been yeah. quite frustrated at times. I should say as well that we've been, unfortunately, the way the system has been set up with the way our program managers have been advertised, it hasn't helped us keep uh, program managers permanently. Uh, but I've 
managed with colleagues to convince the HSE that not only do I need a more permanent program manager full time, not mm -hmm. a shared one with another program, but also that we need a clinical lead uh, for nursing and a clinical need for um, uh, the health and social care professionals to help us implement um, the stroke strategy. So really we are going to have a proper implementation team of four now uh, reporting back to the clinical advisory group. So I'm hoping we will make rapid progress uh, with an implementation team in, um, in place. Yeah, great. Um, well, th that's all I, we, I had planned to ask you. I wonder, is there anything else that you had wanted to talk about or bring up or raise awareness for? No, I think I'd like to um, just mention a couple of peripheral things that yeah. are, number one, to thank colleagues. I am a geriatrician myself. Uh, all my colleagues in the Irish Gerontological Society of all disciplines for their support because I have to work uh, with many people to try and make this a reality. So that's the first thing, to thank colleagues for their support. The second thing is that there are ongoing initiatives that have been happening on the, around the sidelines of the main stroke strategy. So first of all, um, the British Association of Stroke Physicians, uh, which is very allied to the UK Stroke Forum, um, have agreed to become the British and Irish Association of Stroke Physicians. Uh, so I'm encouraging more membership of that. I want my next phase in this argument is to try and push this to become more multidisciplinary representative group uh, for, for Britain and Ireland and not just about physicians. I think everyone can have within their own professional body within that. But what I would like to see happen is that the UK Stroke Forum would become the UK and Irish Stroke Forum going forward. I, there's some politics around that, obviously, because people have been running individual, you know, their own individual important uh, and very valuable conferences like NIMAST in Northern Ireland, yeah. the Irish Heart Foundation in here, the Volunteer Stroke Scheme and others in the UK Stroke Forum. So I think to have a debate around this, there will be some sensitivities. But yeah. I would like to think that while we can all have our own conferences, that we might periodically, maybe biannually, have one conference that represents the five nations um, um, within um, the UK and Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that would be good because I think our health services are most allied. They're designed most similarly, whereas there's probably more differences between us. Yeah. The second thing to say to people is that people often ask me, well, what can you show us our Irish national guidelines for stroke care? We don't have any. We did set up a kind of a guidance document back in 2007 with the Irish Heart Foundation when we first started out on this mission, uh, but clearly that wasn't developed with a proper rigorous approach to guideline development. Developing guidelines is onerous, it's costly, uh, it's probably beyond uh, our current remit uh, as a one small country in terms of individual resources to do. So again, we've allied up with the Royal Colleges in the UK and Scotland to get everybody to agree that we will have one intercollegiate guideline. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm grateful to colleagues from all disciplines, including um, HSEP disciplines, for contributing to this process. And hopefully, towards the end of this year, we will have a draft update uh, of what will be truly intercollegiate guidelines for stroke care management going forward and that will be a body of work that will continue going forward. Mm -hmm. I suppose the last thing just to, to update then is to say to people that who might criticize the stroke strategy and rightly so, uh, towards the end of the lifetime of this strategy around 2005 we will be having a next steps review. 
Um, that next steps review will be under a new clinical lead because I won't be there then. I don't plan hanging around forever in a day because I think you need to bring new uh, blood into the system uh, and I plan on stepping down next year. Uh, but uh, that next steps review will need to the next step strategy and ultimately the next step strategy will ultimately hope to implement the stroke action plan for Europe, the SAPE. Uh, because ultimately the aim of our overall stroke strategy is not only to improve stroke services for patients immediately in Ireland, but also to move towards a consistent high level uh, of um, quality stroke care for patients that is consistent across the European Union, which is envisaged by the European Stroke Organization. That's brilliant. God, you, you had plenty of bits out there. <laughs> Too much, maybe. Too no, much. no. It's, busy, it's, a, it's a busy program, actually. It's a, it's a fun yeah, program is. to be involved with. And there's this hoping now that the pandemic is over, there will be more of an outward reach uh, mm -hmm. to nursing and to HSCP colleagues within the IGS once our clinical leads have been uh, appointed, uh, which is happening in the next week or so. Brilliant. Uh, no, that's absolutely brilliant. So I suppose the big thing from the IGS perspective is to thank you for your time and you're just a wealth of knowledge and experience on, I suppose, stroke care in Ireland. And yeah, just thank everyone for listening in. And I suppose if there's any feedbacks or, or questions, they can always send it along to the podcast and we can get in touch with you. But otherwise, just thank you so much for your time, your expertise, Ronan. No, thanks Adele for the opportunity to update colleagues. As I said, I'm a proud member of the IGS myself, so I'm delighted to be asked to uh, to talk to colleagues. And thank you again, everybody, for your support. And I mean that. It it it, it can be difficult at times, uh, so it's great to have people supporting you. Thank you.